Hey, it's John. I'm out in the garden, so you might hear a little background noise right now, but I uh, just figured this was a good place to tell you about our sponsor for this week. We are brought to you by the Organic Growers School Farm Beginnings, a year-long farmer training program that is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and to build a profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farm network. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Educational Center in Arden, North Carolina. Thanks. Here's the show. From Dirty Spoon Media, it's The Second Helping, extended interviews with some of our favorite guests on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons. I doubt she'd ever admit this, and it might terrify her to think about, but Mackenzie Lunsford is one of the most important figures in the Asheville food scene to date. For nearly 15 years, she has chronicled the rise and fall of every restaurant, the legacy of every notable chef, and the struggles that face one of the largest industries in the city of Asheville. Cutting her teeth writing for the alt-weekly Mountain Express, where she worked under the tutelage of the great John Alliston, she went on to become the driving force behind the Asheville Citizen Times publication, The Asheville Scene. Weathering five rounds of layoffs at the ACT, she is just one of 20 staff left in that newsroom. And she is finding herself writing stories she never thought she'd write, having come into this game as a food critic. Everything from police blotter to murder reports to the weather forecast, she's really gone from someone with an opinion about food to an award-winning journalist. I've got to say, I really love Mackenzie. She's one of the reasons I got into this game to begin with. When she left the Mountain Express, she encouraged me to throw my hat into the ring for her job. I didn't get it, of course. But eventually, I did line the byline there, thanks to her. There are a few journalists in this town that have stuck with their beat for as long or as doggedly as Mackenzie Lunsford. And as a result, she has literally written the history of the city's restaurant industry. It is impossible to imagine what our food scene might look like even with all the incredible talent that has passed through it, without the attention and national focus that she has drawn to it over the years. So I was happy to sit down and talk with her about her career, where she comes from, how it all started, and where it might be going from here. I'll warn you, this is a long conversation, but it's also an important one. We get to touch on the role and value of food journalism in the world. What scares us about food media these days, what it's like being a journalist in an era where we are called the enemy of the people and fake news, and what worries her about the state and trajectory of Asheville. Stick around. It's well worth it. I think, like, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you for this is, like, um, how long have you been writing? Um, I think I started writing for the Mountain Express in 2000 it's it's possible late 2004 yeah 2005 yeah it it 2005 some somewhere thereabouts yeah so a minute yeah that's <laughs> uh well over a decade <laughs> I, I I think I'm not so good at math yeah I think like I don't really 
know of anyone that's been on the same beat in this city for quite that long. I mean, to be fair, I took a couple of years off to open a restaurant, which was just a stupid idea. What was the restaurant? <laughs> it was it was a restaurant that I opened with my ex-husband. Called, <laughs> there's a reason he's my ex-husband. Called Cafe Azalea. And oh, it, yeah. it lasted for a minute. Yeah, you I know? remember Cafe Azalea. It lasted longer. I didn't than, know you were behind that. Well, it lasted longer than we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... I, I <laughs> so, opening yeah. restaurants and going to ikea dooming marriages yeah, that's exactly right <laughs> things not to do um some people make it work it was just anyway so i went back to writing i i did that honestly for a year or something before i was i realized that had actually been my dream my whole life um was to open a restaurant because i'd worked in kitchens pretty much my whole career was yeah. working in kitchens and I thought the end was going to be, you know, owning my own thing. And it took me, I mean, approximately three months, even though I'd been in restaurants my whole, you know, working life before I was like, not only do I not like this, I don't like myself in this, in position. this position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it made me into like the worst human ever. So I I just straight up quit that and worked in a hotel for two years and wrote freelance until I could go to food writing full time. Yeah. People always ask That's me when I'm going to open a bar and I'm like, never. I'm just nope. not going to do that because I've been in the position of power and I've been in that position of leadership. And when it's all, when I realize that it all reflects on me, and that it's ultimately my responsibility. I'm a real jerk to work with. Man, I, I mean, I hear you. That's, yeah. I just have no aspirations to be in charge whatsoever. Yeah, it's, like, it's brutal. Not o- upwardly mobile at all. No. I have, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no benefit to it. There's no... I mean, like, when you do things right, you do it, it's done right. And it's nice to know that you can get things done right under your watch. But I can do that for somebody else. Yeah. I don't have to do that... Just for me. And then you're not like calculating the cost of each spoon as it falls into the trash can. Exactly. Which is something I literally did. (laughs) (laughs) We lost three spoons today. (laughs) Taking it out of your tips. Yeah. So not, not, not good, not good for the minds (laughs) or the blood pressure. So anyway, so here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, but you've been in this game a really long time here. I feel like. Um, you've documented pretty much the development of the Asheville food scene. I I have, uh, whether I've done, you know, done it correctly or the right way the entire time is in dispute, but (laughs) (laughs) I have played that role. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, I think that that's, um, I was having this conversation the other day of like one of the things that I really love about journalism and about writing for um, local publications is, uh, when I was in high school, I went to, we had a field trip that took us to the, uh, um, Asheville public library to teach us about researching and processes of research. And so we went through like the microfiche machines and we went through all the archives and newspapers and through like JSTOR with all the archives of peer to peer review. And one of the coolest things to me was like when I found the Asheville citizen times, um, archive of all the microfish and then realizing that I could go back to like the years my grandmother was a kid Mm -hmm. and read the paper and see what was going on 
And it gave me like a context for her life and where she was growing up and how she, what she saw and experienced in town, who owned what businesses, what restaurants were opening, what restaurants were closing, like um, all of that stuff and what roads were being built. And, you know, as a local reporter, you're documenting all of that. Newspapers has, yeah, exactly. Newspapers have kind of borne witness to um, the minutia of, of daily life in a small town, in every small town everywhere. And that's what scares me the most about the decline of print journalism, that there are few people who, you know, we, we myself and my colleagues and everybody else that I know that works at, at a newspaper, you know, it's their full-time gig, gets up every morning and just kind of writes about what's going on, you know, yeah. whether it's some stupid, boring policy meeting or, you know, uh, dirty water, <laughs> for example. I mean, you know, uh, th- it's it's a document. It's a, a living, breathing document, and it scares me to imagine that that might go away. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. How did you get into writing? What what story? Well, actually, let's go back even further than that. Where where are you from originally? I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I was raised in Annapolis, Maryland. I've lived in Asheville, North Carolina for twenty years. Um, and <clears throat> I I was always a writer. And um, when I worked in restaurants as a line cook my father never let me forget that so (laughs) when are you gonna start writing again when are you gonna start writing again um and you know it's worth mentioning that when I was a line cook being a line cook wasn't really cool (laughs) (laughs) you know I mean my dad didn't really care what was cool or not but it, it wasn't a career I should say so he always kind of tried to push me to get back into writing And the way that I got, I mean, I'm not, I didn't go to journalism school or anything like that. I simply answered a one ad in the newspaper for a weekly food columnist for the Mountain Express. That, that's it. (laughs) And then I just started working and working hard and kind of applying the same kind of um, work ethic I learned in the kitchen to writing. Yeah. What made you inclined to do that? What, what? I think, the- I think my knees hurt. <laughs> I think what, what pulled me into it. Um, truly, there was um, there was a sense that what I was doing in the restaurant industry was not sustainable. You know, there always had it had occurred to me probably in my mid 20s that I couldn't stay up until four in the morning for the rest of my life and then sleep until one. Um, or at least that wouldn't be good for me. But um, also, it, it may even see, sound cliche at this point because I bet so many people have said it. But I started reading Anthony Bourdain when I was a line cook and was like, oh, okay, there's actually a way that you can do this. You can go from a kitchen into writing about restaurants. You don't have to do it in kind of a like sort of highfalutin way. You don't have to be right. the rich person who's sitting in the dining room you know, experiencing all of... Eating your 12-course meal. Right. Yeah. You you can know what goes into making that, you know, and and go at it that way. Yeah. In a kind of, you know, very down-to-earth and maybe perhaps even rough kind of way. Yeah. And, and so that seemed to me to be an avenue that I could follow. And what was your role like when you started? What did that 
what did that job look like? Did you you were working for another editor at that point, a food editor at that point? Or? No, there wasn't any, but God, I really could have used a food editor. I mean, I had a great editor. I had John Elliston, who oh, worked yeah. at the Mountain Express. He's just amazing. Yeah. And, a I god mean, of journalism in this area. <laughs> and I, I, I honestly don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for him. Um, and he was, fab, you know, he told me things that I really should have known already about, like where to put the quotation marks in relationship to the period. You know what I mean? Just dumb stuff I should have already known. Um, but he really nurtured me and, and helped me out. Um, it's funny. He literally did that same thing to me a while back. He sent me an email that was like, hey, John, when you're writing for this magazine, you need to put the comma, then quotation mark, then said so-and-so, then period, then start another quotation mark. And I was like, okay, thanks. And he said it patiently like he hadn't have said that to 8 million people before you. I exactly. know, because yeah. he's a saint Like I'm the them. only person that's ever made that mistake. It was, it was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I was just doing restaurant reviews. I was doing weekly restaurant reviews, and um, I tried to be fair and I tried to be judgmental when when it called for it and um I definitely got pilloried for some of did you the try to, first what did you try to do the whole like anonymous yeah thing? I mean did you ever show up in disguises <laughs> yeah because that wouldn't have given me away like, <laughs> a big floppy hat with a <laughs> no, like I mean, nobody wig. knew who I was. I was just a kid. I mean, I was in my early 20s when I started doing that. But um, I mean, I, I attacked an institution. Uh, what was the name of the German restaurant that was down in South Asheville? Help me out. I'm just drawing oh, a blank. The Black Forest. The restaurant. Black Forest. Wonderful place. has been there for many, many years. I did not enjoy my particular experience. And I wrote very candidly about it. And I'm pretty sure that they ran letters to the editor about how stupid I was for about two months. I mean, people who said you should have more culinary education than just working in McDonald's for a summer, which is very specific and incorrect. <laughs> wow. Yeah, people didn't like that very much. I would like to say that we have a city have, we as a city have grown since then. That's true. I mean, that had to be a huge learning curve too. Yeah. Jumping in as a critic. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing at all. Yeah. I really didn't. Then I thought I did. I was like, these people, they think I don't know. And I really didn't know. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. You always think you know more mm. when you know nothing. And, <laughs> and then once you start knowing something, you're like, I don't know anything I'm at all. I'm a big idiot. And then you start to really gain experience, <laughs> and you're like, I kind of get this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What that's was, that's a very healthy, healthy place to be. What was that, that like? Did you Were there like particularly... Do you have any particularly embarrassing moments where you were like, Ooh, <laughs> oh, my I God, I dropped the ball on that one. I mean, I'm 40 and I've been doing this since I was in my mid 20s. So, yeah, <laughs> I have a lot well, of I mean, embarrassing I mean, moments. early on there. Early on. I mean, I can tell you that after that Black Forest incident, which, you know, I don't think I pulled any punches. And I think, you know, now I would probably not be so snarky. Um <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think there would be a reaction, but they, they actually like threw a Mountain Express newspaper box into a dumpster and lit it on fire. That's what I heard from the advertising people right after they lost that account. <laughs> wow. Isn't that illegal? Isn't that federally illegal? 
I don't know. Hey, listen, nobody, I mean, Black Forest is gone now. That That's just a story I heard. All right. <laughs> <laughs> nobody get, that's, that would talk about adding insult to injury. <laughs> 20 years later, there's an investigation. <laughs> the cold case has been cracked wide open. Um, let me think. People I mean... will go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going I've to jail. It's not really happening. I mean, yeah. Uh, do you know who Michael Muller is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we decided that we were going to start a, um, a like Twitter morning show thing called like Mike and Mac in the morning, and he would I tweet. Think I on... remember this. Yeah, we just got super tanked, and it was the morning. You know, it was we started. We started off in Posana and then we ended up in Pax Tavern and like we were with Ann Fitton Glenn, I think. And, you know, we were just live tweeting, getting super tanked. And then Michael Muller went sort of off the rails as he did. Bless his heart. And um, I think my favorite tweet from him (laughs) during that period was he made some comment about like, and now I'm going to switch over to Citizen Times and see if I can find some real news for you. And then a couple minutes later, like, that tweet was deleted. What a dear, dear man. Yeah. We yeah, got called into Jeff Phobes' office kind of a lot after that and had a, had a few kind of Jesus moments. It, I remember Michael Muller's, um, I think it's his husband. Um, at the time, I don't know if they were married, but anyway, Mike and Mike, um, the, the saner Mike (laughs) came to collect Michael Muller, you know, after reading all the tweets, like marched down to Pax Tavern. And, uh, I mean, like a story about that ended up in the Asheville Citizen Times, Jason Sanford wrote it. And it was just like, I, I don't know. I just, again, just had this thought at the time or this feeling that nobody was watching somehow. Even though you're tweeting it to it's just <laughs> thousands of people. Yeah, we were just kind of, I was just surprised that there was an article about how stupid we were in the daily paper, but there was. So that was embarrassing. <laughs> good times. That's a good one. Good times. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I kind of look back on that fondly, though, not really with embarrassment. I mean, I wish I could... I, I can't see myself doing something that now without being just way hyper self-conscious about it, you know? Yeah. I and mean, there's something fun about that. It was probably a little bit more pirate ship than it should have been. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like that's most most publications then were left <laughs> to the devices of their departments because there were a lot more people to manage than there are now. I don't know what was going on there, but it was really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When did you shift away from doing food criticism to focusing more on the journalistic aspect of things? So that was a that was a John Elliston decision. So when I so I was the first person to do um, like a regular column at the Mountain Express and I left like I said, for a couple of years or maybe it was like two and a half years to play a restaurant owner and then do other things. But um, it, Hannah Raskin, who is just a fantastic food writer, was basically like, 
she came in there in she's the middle. She's in Charleston now, right? She's in Charleston, and she's, you know, James Beard yeah. award-winning. I mean, she's just fantastic. She's really great. She's a mover and a shaker. She came in to do the food criticism. And I think somewhere near the end of her tenure, they decided, John decided that he wanted to reimagine the food section and have it be more focused on, he thought that the city could support more of a journalistic take on food. And I think to be completely honest with you, it had something to do with not pissing off people anymore, too. I mean, it just was... It was a little bit too much of a rub to run like a community-focused, advertising-dependent newspaper, you know. And and then, you know, can 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 I curse on this thing? Sure, of course. <laughs> right. We'll just bleep it out. <laughs> um, well, I I think it was a little bit too much of a conflict to have this community-focused newspaper that is dependent in a large part on advertising dollars to just start crapping on on all of the uh people who advertise in the food paying section the money paying for I, the paper i think that that was part of it that was a, probably a small part of it um but it was part of it yeah. but it wasn't I liked the decision. It wasn't, you know, we're going to start pandering to these people and write, like, fluffy reviews. It was like, let's focus on news and other things b- beyond what's on your plate. Yeah. And which has informed my career ever since. Yeah. So. Well, and I feel like that's something that, like, I've gotten... I get a lot of shit from people that want to say, like, you're not hard enough on restaurants or you're not hard enough on places. Like, you're not critical enough. And I'm like... I'm not a critic, A. That's not right. my job. It was never my job. I never claimed that that was my job. I write people's stories, and I talk about where our food comes from. And uh, I think, like, beyond that, I think this town is almost too – or was. I think maybe we're getting to the point where we could sustain, like, a really critical – a really harsh critic now. But I think back then – it was at the especially until like until probably two thousand five two or two thousand seven two thousand eight two thousand ten maybe even not even till two thousand ten I don't think of, that this city was even big enough or had enough restaurants to sustain a harsh critic. I I think of two thousand and ten as the time when this city really started to boom restaurant yeah. wise. That's the mark that I think. Yeah. Because, and I think, like, I think 2010 was, yeah, I think you're right. I think that was about the point where it got to the point where we could actually sustain um, enough restaurants where a bad review wouldn't kill them. Because I think that was really the danger at a certain point is, like, this idea that, like, these are small businesses Mm -hmm. in a struggling economy, and if you really do just shit all over them, they're how are they going to sustain after that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's before Yelp, before um, TripAdvisor, before any of that stuff. Right. And so that was the voice. Like, you were the voice of that criticism. And that had to be kind of daunting, especially when you were coming in, like, 2005. <laughs> I think I think I said it before. I think I was just too stupid to be... <laughs> To be concerned. I mean, I really was like, cool, <laughs> let's do this. Right. You know, but I mean, I, I knew what I was talking about from a, a, 
from a culinary standpoint, but I don't think I was educated enough in journalism. And, and I mean, let's face it, I was super green, too. I was in my mid-20s, so it's not like I'd been right. cooking forever. Right. <laughs> I just knew about food and how it was supposed to taste, I guess is all I'm saying. But, like, definitely was a cocky 20-something dumb kid who was, like, concerned about restaurant owners, to be sure, but just was unaware of any kind of power or influence I had right at the time and I still shy away from that notion because if I think too much about it it just makes me feel weird it I, I, you know it's easier to just kind of pretend like no like I said nobody's reading but still get everything right do everything well um what changed in your work environment when when you made that transition like how did how did that affect the way you did your work how did that affect the way that you approached your job I mean it I had to learn how to be a real actual honest to god journalist (laughs) I had to learn how to report things accurately and not just talk about what I was seeing you know yeah and that was kind of a shift I'm sure it was pretty bumpy you know I didn't totally know what I was doing I definitely learned on the job how did that look day to day for you um, I mean, you know, I made a mis- I made some mistakes. I had to run some corrections. I think I recall mis- <laughs> misspelling somebody's name in an article and then misspelling it a different way in the correction and then having to, <laughs> like, to the editor basically was like, I'm writing this correction this time, <laughs> you know, and it just, uh, I think I, I, I think I made some dumb mistakes along the way, but uh you know school of hard knocks yeah <laughs> you know and and now i'm 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 careful and if i make mistakes everybody makes mistakes but if i make mistakes it's like it I, everything stops until it's resolved i mean i i try my damnedest to i mean i hurt I, I if i write a big long story i will call people and just fact check fact check fact check until they're like okay yeah. <laughs> enough <laughs> leave right. me alone so huh um did you do you have college education did you go to college i did but it's just i never i never graduated from yeah. anywhere i i what went school? to i went to ab tech i went to community college anne arundel community college in maryland um, I did some culinary school, um, some at AB Tech, but I am not a diploma. I'm not a diploma holding college student, but I probably took enough college to, yeah. if I had ever gotten it together to graduate. But that's pretty incredible to have a. I mean, you must be approaching a second decade in journalism, not having a degree. That's incredible. No, and no giant scandals. <laughs> Except the vowel scandal of 1999. (laughs) So when did you make the transition over to Citizen Times from Express? I went over to the Citizen Times in in 2012, and it was a bit of a culture shock. (laughs) (laughs) Really? It doesn't run like an alt-weekly newsroom when you're in Gannett? No, isn't that weird? I, no no kegs of beer during particularly trying times yeah <laughs> that was a bummer yeah it, it was it was very different and um 
I'm going to say that it took me a little while to like it, but now I like it more. What, why so? Um, I think, <laughs> well, there's definitely some serious camaraderie that comes in a staff in a newsroom um, period, but especially surviving layoffs where you see some of the people that you've worked with and loved, you know, as very good friends and, you know, known their families and all of that and just see them kind of unceremoniously removed from the room mm -hmm. on a surprise layoff day. Going through that with people will draw you even closer together. Yeah. And, um, and that's happened quite a bit since you've been there. I mean, I think I, I've been trying to figure this out, but I think almost every year since I've been there, I think I might have been through five and I've been there for seven years. How many people are left? At Citizen Times at this point? Um, I think it's somewhere between... I mean, there's an advertising staff and there are right, people who work in distribution. On but the, the news floor. The newsroom, and I think it's somewhere between 15 and 20. We tried to um, count... We counted it the other day. I just forgot the number. Um, there's uh, two photographers, um, two editors. There is Answer Man Boyle, Jennifer Dillon, Joel, myself, Karen... Um, 13. How many were there when you started? Oh, um, twice that. Wow. Yeah. You know, um, this, we have a sports department of one. Um, I feel like I'm missing somebody. So somewhere between 13 and 15, just without, you know, anyway, um, we have a d sports department of one. And when I first got there, there were several people, you know, we had, an editor for the scene section and, you know, three or four different people writing entertainment news. And now there's just not, you know, it's just me writing. No, you get to be the weather girl too. Yeah. I, it, I don't, I don't know if I have Stockholm syndrome or what, but I mean, I still somehow, I love it there. And I think it's just, I love the job and I love the people that are left. And don't you have to run the police blotter sometimes? I mean, too? that's just a thing that we've always had to do. I mean, <laughs> but not anymore. Not anymore. I mean, but that's the thing. That's the thing that I have learned. Right. That's the thing that I've learned on the job is is how to write breaking news. I've written an A1 story about a double homicide cold case that got cracked open on the day that I was supposed to be watching the breaking news beat. Right. You know, and and I mean. I'm sorry, that's going to look okay on a resume if I need to, right. <laughs> like, can write your food content and your double homicide stories, right. you know? But it's like not that, what you got into when you left the restaurant to break into food writer. That's versatility, Evans. <laughs> <laughs> I am a hireable journalist. <laughs> if anyone's out there, just kidding. I like my job. No, I think that that's, I think that that's like, what is, is um, what I've always admired is that you aren't, in an age where everyone's trying to run a food blog, like you're writing actual journalism and your primary beat just happens to be food. Um, I think that's remarkable. It's really admirable. And I think that like it's really underappreciated and especially underappreciated with anyone that is a legitimate journalist covering these beats is like, that's a very different job than the guy running the food blog telling you what restaurant's good or which, what one sucks or where the $5 specials are that week. Um, those are important things for people to know as well. And I still do that stuff. Of course. Yeah. But you can also turn around and crank out coverage of a double homicide. 
I mean, sometimes you that that's the thing about working in a small newspaper staff. I mean, you just have to it's kind of it is kind of in some ways it is very restaurant like you just have to be a team player. Nobody's going to be, you know, if if the shit hits the fan at a restaurant. Right. And you're down a dishwasher or whatever. I would hope that most people working in a restaurant kitchen are not going to shrug and just say, eh. I guess we won't wash dishes tonight or like, you know what I mean? You know, I'm not going to do it. That sort of thing. It's the same in a newspaper. Oh, there's nobody here to do that. All right, fine. But yeah, it's not the same because the difference is going to cover a double homicide. There are legal standards that you have to uphold. There are journalistic integrity models that you have to adhere to. There are, um, files that you have to fill out to get the right information and the proper feedback from your public officials on those things. Like you've got to know those things too. And the guy going into review Carabas doesn't need to know that. <laughs> well, that is the value of an editor. <laughs> Please let us keep our editors, Gannett. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, you know, the the specific case that we're talking about, there was a lot of information that was provided from the police department, which was how we knew that they had made an arrest and the whole thing. But it, it just it took a lot of research, which was easy to do because we're sitting on a hundred years of newspaper clippings, you know. Um and like I said, a smart editor <laughs> right. knows, you know. Anyway, I, I, I guess I, I keep kind of pushing that off. I mean, I feel like it is just a job to be done and to be done properly. I don't mean to discount it, but I mean, I guess that is something that's it. I should own that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you should. You should. You should be proud so, of it. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I can write about your 25 meals <laughs> for $10 or less. And I can <clears throat> research a double homicide. And I mean, I, I don't know. I like horror movies. That stuff is interesting to me. <laughs> it's grim and it's grisly and it's horrible and it's interesting news. Yeah. How did the sudden work requirement to cover news news um, alter the way you approached food writing? How has that affected you in how you approach food writing? Because there's more investigation behind actual news reporting. There's more. Um, it's just a very different style of approaching a story and telling a story. Um, I wonder how that changed the way that you approached food journalism. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess every job that I've done has been just something that I, I learned as I was going along. I mean, I was never a, a formally trained <clears throat> excuse me, formally trained cook. Although I did, like I said, I, I did go to, I did take some culinary school. I did not graduate. Don't consider myself to be a formally trained cook. I don't consider myself to be a formally trained journalist. I, but I have learned from the people around me. And I think that their style and their professionalism has, has informed the way that I go about things. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you're getting at though. Well, I, what I'm wondering is, like, how does it affect the way that you approach an individual story? Because, mm -hmm. like, I mean, so when I started writing about food, um, I approached it very much from that kind of no reservations Bourdain-like, here's this food and here's the person's story behind it. But then as I got deeper into it, 
I mean, I studied economics when I was in college. So I started digging into like, what is this doing to our cultural landscape? How is this affecting us? How is this affecting the economics of our community? And like, what is this tourism based restaurant beer driven scene mean for the whole thing? And it set me off on this whole other path and changed the way I approached all my stories. And I can't help but think that like, once you started seeing and having to write about all these other aspects, your perspective had to shift a little bit. And I'm just wondering where and how it did. I mean, I think good journalism of any sort, whether it's food journalism or whatever, requires a curious mind. And I think that the, the more that you're in journalism and um, see that you, you need to know the who, the why, the what, the where, and all of that, you learn how to ask those questions and dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper. And I guess, in a sense, you learn from, or I have learned from working in a daily paper, that the story isn't always what you think it is at face value. <clears throat> and if you ask enough questions and if you listen hard enough, you'll find the real story within the story. Yeah. And, and I, really, I really think that, that that's the key to it. I mean, you can you can set off to find out. Um, well, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, you you are, you are. Do you do you always approach the stories with the who, what, why, where, when? How? Is that, is that a how? <laughs> it's like the five W's, and a, four W's, and an H, something like that. Um. What do I? I mean, I I don't feel like I set off to do I don't get often get an idea in my head I guess that's what I'm trying to say I feel like the best journalism is what is going on what is the temperature of my community what are the problems what what is interesting here and I'm not going at it in an aggressive way generally to try and coax a certain thing out those things are already there to be covered and it's my job to bring those things to light that's how I and and perhaps that's just going about it in a backwards way and perhaps that is me not having an editor who goes and tells me what story to chase um the the community not to sound cliche, but the community presents the stories. I'm just here to to bring them to a different audience. Were you always like that, or is that something new? I've always been a born communicator. I mean, I, did you used to go in with an agenda or with an opinion, and then? I, I don't know that I... I don't know that I have gone in with an agenda that I can think of. But we would have to spend some time with a lot of stories a lot of back <laughs> to see if that's accurate. No, I just I just know that I certainly used to. Like that was when I first started. I used to come in with like, "This is what I'm gonna write about," and then it quickly became like, "Well, no, I don't know how to pitch this story to you because it's not a story yet. Because I'm just curious about how to grow mushrooms." And so I want to go check out this mushroom farm. Yeah. And then within like two days, I would have a story shaping up, you know, and like, I feel like those things kind of grow organically. No pun intended with yeah. the mushroom <laughs> comment. But. but I mean, there are issues to cover. And that's the kind of stuff that I love the most. You know, the, um, there are labor issues, for example. There, um, there are things that people who go out to eat regularly don't know about, such as 
many restaurant employees don't get sick pay, right? Mm -hmm. Or any kind of PTO whatsoever. They're just expected to show up sick. So in talking to people who work in restaurants, and this is something I already intuitively know, but talking to people in this kind of new, um, this new almost generation of people who work in restaurants who are like, hey, I don't want to stand for this anymore. I want to have the kinds of rights that anybody working in any other industry has. And talking to them, trying to push for sick pay, I realized that, that that is a story, not necessarily the fact that that is happening, that workers are pushing for sick pay, but that the vast majority of foodborne norovirus <laughs> comes from workers who are forced to go to work sick huh. and work with food. Yeah. And I won a North Carolina Press Association Award for beat news reporting for writing that story. And it it did it kind of surprised me that nobody had ever thought of that before, you know, right. that um, at least where I worked. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't a story I was seeing widely reported and it certainly surprised the judges. And it sounds like it surprises you. But, yeah, you know, but those sorts of stories are just there. Yeah. You find you're covering one thing and suddenly the other angle pops up on you. Yeah, it's usually that. I mean, I, I, I guess I could say I rarely go in with an agenda, but I try to have an open mind and listen to what people are saying and just have um, an idea, an ear for a story when I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing that, like, I mean, I guess I had to first clarify that, like, I think you were one of the people that helped me get into journalism like, I remember when you were leaving Mountain Express, like, to go to Citizen Times, your position was opening up. And I remember coming to you saying, like, I think I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this and, like, picking your brain. And uh, just realizing that I had no idea what I was getting into or knew, no <laughs> idea what I was doing. But you, uh, you've, you've always done an amazing job. I wouldn't say that. I think I've. I think I'm learning every day, every day, <laughs> to, to be something closer to a journalist. I don't think I'm there yet, but I think I'm getting there. Um, maybe, maybe in five years. <laughs> I've been doing this for six. Maybe five more is what it'll take. But uh, one of the things that I noticed personally was like I got into this because I thought I wanted to have a voice and say something, and then the longer I did it the more I realized that the job is listening and the job is to just make your voice completely disappear and just to be someone else's voice. And I think that's like good journalism is being the mouthpiece to a larger audience for someone else, like to tell their stories. Um, I mean, that probably took me two years in the job to really hit me over the head and get it. Uh, I'm wondering, like, how 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 your approach and perspective changed as you were coming up in this. Yeah, um, <laughs> it takes a while to learn how to shut up and get out of the way, doesn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> it does. It really and, does. Yeah, and you know, you know how I learned that <laughs> from recording all of my interviews and listening to my big mouth. Yeah, and just wishing I as I was listening, could hear myself just shut up and let people talk. And that's it. <laughs> just listening to myself. 
and my big mouth. It is kind of horrifying when you first the first few times like play back the recording and like hear yourself hear yeah. the bad the poorly dropped jokes like the Yes. The or or it's even worse when you're like you hear the moment where like they answered your question perfectly and you missed it. Yeah. So you just bulldozed on and didn't follow that like crucial lead and you're like oh god (laughs) right no but really it teaches you how to listen i mean it's that's it's just it's gross that moment that you just talked about i've had that moment so many times and it's just like sinking feeling like jesus shut up and listen and that's just such a big part of it is just learning how to make yourself disappear and ask the right questions but you know, just just let let people talk and let people tell their story and yeah, and you'll you'll find out what the story is if you can just remove yourself and your ego from it. Yeah, I mean, easier said than done. It's not like <laughs> I am a completely egoless journalist. <laughs> I can't say that. No, you know? every day. I think it's it's a daily daily progression. What scares you in the world of food journalism today? <laughs> What scares me personally or what scares me for the future of food journalism in general? Yes. <laughs> okay. What scares me about... Let me think about that. I... God, there's so many things. I think that it's being kind of watered down. It's sort of like anyone can do it and the I, I I believe in ethics and journalistic standards and you know um, keeping conflicts of interest at bay and I think the more that people don't think about those sorts of things the more it's just gonna devolve into in some respects a big, advertising celebration <laughs> you know like i i you know you scratch that a little more well it's just kind of i try not to be too promotional um i have a lot of people who sometimes make comments about what i do and say that my job is to promote local restaurants and that isn't my job at all how do you see it Um, I I mean, I'm just trying to, uh, how do I see it? My job is as a, as a journalist, as a newspaper reporter is to report what's going on and also to, you know, tell people about cool stuff that's happening too. It's not all super serious. Right. But I mean, I'm not, my function is not solely to make restaurant owners happy. Right. You know, that's just not it. And occasionally there are going to be issues, you know, like if I write about labor issues, I I might piss some restaurant owners off. I would hope that they know that I'm not, you know, purposefully trying to take a swipe at their business or them or that sort of thing. But um, in, in an effort also to write honestly about the local restaurant scene, I try not to take 
gifts of any sort and I decline free meals often and sometimes that makes me feel like a little bit inhospitable or uh like I'm I'm not not inhospitable like I'm not um accepting of other people's hospitality but there are so many food writers who do do that bloggers who take free meals everywhere and that's you know part of their thing that they do and that's fine but it's just different from newspaper journalism yeah I mean I certainly take the meals I just don't write about them Right. Well, so, but even doing that, just like if if I were to take a meal and then not write about it, then I'm just like naturally such an anxious person that I'll be like, if we're talking about fears here, the sort of thing that (laughs) keeps my wheels turning at night is like, oh, well, I did eat that meal but I'm not gonna cover it and now I bet they think that I'm just a freeloader so just to kind of head that off I just don't take the free meals because it's just like there's no conflict no one expects anything you know and I'll go in there someday myself and pay for it and you know I don't know but that's also a, a thing that seems kind of rude to turn down to decline a free meal from people at the same time it does it does so we just like totally that's why i can't really do it yet (laughs) i'm not there yet so we just totally dove into my anxieties is basically what we did i'm not sure if that's that's the same thing as what do i fear well we're writers (laughs) so we're riddled with anxieties that's what drives our careers this is like should i take the food should i not take the food i'm perhaps too busy anyway or chasing after a three-year-old i don't know (laughs) Yeah, um, but but I I do I do worry, you know, that there are so many people doing it, and you know, th- these days of of Yelp, you know, everybody's everybody's a critic, you know. Everybody thinks they're Gordon Ramsay. Everybody thinks they're Gordon Ramsay, and it just kind of, um, you know, it just becomes a little crowded, I guess, and you have to figure out a way to separate yourself and, you know, not become an irrelevant writer that nobody reads anymore I guess I mean that is definitely ego talking but uh I want to do my focus is on is always been working hard and doing a good job but sometimes I think that that's just not good enough because people want a little bit more flamboyance and a little bit more promotional and a little bit more this and that do you know what I mean yeah they want a tv personality on the other end of the keyboard yeah and that's just not really me yeah. I wonder if I should do more of that stuff. Again, anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Start shooting selfies everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess I need to do more of that. You know, and part of being in journalism, unfortunately, yeah. these days is being a little bit more self-promotional. But I just don't really. We just spent like this whole time talking about how part of being a good journalist is to get the hell out of the way and shut the hell up. And that's not part of the job is also these days to be self-promotional and that's just so at odds you you know what I mean it's yeah I don't yeah I mean I've always been kind of averse to that myself I mean how all of my social media pictures or profiles are illustrations of myself because I'm sick of it was the moment when I was (laughs) in the grocery store and a guy walked up to me and took a picture of my grocery basket and I like looked at him kind of sideways, like, what, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, I just wanted to see what the food writer buys at the grocery store. <laughs> That's really intrusive. And I was like, That's just really creepy. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I want anyone to know who I am anymore. Like, please let me draw myself and use that as my profile. <laughs> That's super intrusive and strange. It was so but, creepy. Like kind of endearing. Was it endearing at all? Or um, was it just straight up creepy? 
it was later when I thought about it, I was like, well, at least you knew who I was. But then I was like, is that a good thing? Yeah. I don't know. I might. I wouldn't be charmed if a stranger walked up to me and was like, "I just want to see what's in your basket." Yeah, but like, like if... the second year I'd written for Express, <laughs> it was really weird. Yeah, let's go back to that though of the uh, the conversation of like what scares us about the media at this point because I think this is so. This is certainly an era where like media is getting a really bad rap. There's all the talk of fake news. There's all the talk of. Um, of no one's trusting the referees like them as reporters we're supposed to be referees and i feel like because of the rise of social media platforms and options like yelp no one's trusting the referees in food media right now and that's a little disconcerting because it can really caused some problems i was just thinking about the the one moment that i can think of where everyone suddenly started trusting the media was when all that lettuce was recalled around christmas yeah (laughs) suddenly we trusted the media right right but other than that beyond that it's all fake news right (laughs) yeah it's it's fake news until your caesar salad's involved then yes, I'm throwing my Caesar salad in the garbage right yeah. now because the paper told me to do it. Romaine will never recover. <laughs> I don't know. What do you? Uh, what's? Uh, what does that look like from from your perspective in that newsroom of of seeing this rise of of backlash against reporters and journalists? Yeah, I I have even the food writer in the Citizen Times been called fake news on. Asheville bunkum politics, you know, and I had the documents in front of me. I, I was not, uh, they just didn't like what I, I mentioned about, um, somebody's rent going up, uh, some restaurants rent going up. And so they were planning to move anyway. And the, the, uh, Asheville bunkum politics people shouted fake news. And, and that was so strange, um, to be roped into that. And I mean, by and large, that doesn't, bother me too much and in a sense I felt like I'd arrived you know <laughs> I, I'm finally fake news that makes me feel important um, but, but um, honestly though if we're talking about real fears I do um, get I, I have real nervousness about people wanting to harm newspaper reporters because of all the rhetoric that's going on right now and it may seem like a silly thing and I I see people give me blank stares sometimes but I mean it just happened at my hometown newspaper in Annapolis you know yeah um last was it last summer or whatever that was my hometown newspaper same same size newsroom everything and just somebody who had a beef against the paper walked in there and started shooting up the place and they too they got an an advertising person and someone who had written like the home of the week or whatever they weren't looking specific I mean they had a target in mind but they weren't like oh I'm just gonna get the politics reporter and the you know this and that and the other person they just started going uh, a little wild in there and that is a real fear for me um and I think it's something that a lot of people who go to work in newsrooms do think about. And I think it's kind of died down now. But there is a lot of hateful rhetoric. There are people who are wearing 
shirts that say, you know, rope tree journalist, you know what I'm talking about at certain rallies and that sort of thing. Um, I've had coworkers who have gotten, you know, spit at and things like that at rallies. And it's, it's a weird climate. Um, and people who work at newspapers, the media, it all gets kind of lumped together, right? You know, mm-hmm. your your hometown newspaper and your CNN talking head, that's all like part of the media, this vast conspiracy. <clears throat> so, I mean, that 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 is a real it's a real thing. It's a real thing to think about when it comes to your daily newspaper. I would say that um oh, we, those of us who work in newsrooms, do notice when people are advocates for us, when people do care about the work that we do, even if it's, like I said, it's something stupid that I've written, like, you know, 25 meals under $10 you can get. <laughs> or or if it's a story that's a little bit more important, you know, uh, just just noticing the work that, that uh, newspaper journalists do in your community just can do quite a lot to stem the kind of tidal wave of hate that's levied towards journalists across the board these days. Yeah. Yeah, and that reminds me of another thing I was going to ask you back and, and kind of push back on a little bit when you were saying that uh, one of the things that scares you about uh, food journalism these days is that this idea that anyone can do it um, and this idea that, that there's a conflict of interest that it's becoming so promotional. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, I'm sure there are people listening to this that are going to say, well, wait a minute, your last article was 20 meals under $10 in town. It was totally just promoting restaurants for their cheap food. And you just said that you started this not having any experience in journalism at all and just cut your teeth just walking in the door. Kind of an anyone can do it mentality. Yeah, well, that's a really good point. Yeah. But, I mean, I I had lived and breathed restaurants right I had worked in them I had done nothing else I wasn't just coming in off the street but I also wasn't a trained journalist and yeah I mean there are going to have to be I I do work for a a corporation I do have a job you know what I mean I I have to write the stories that people will no that's not what I mean at all I mean it's it I have to write the stories that lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people will read so that I can spend time on writing stories that are maybe more important that fewer Uh, people will read but there are you know there are certain there's a certain job that we have to do and we're aware of that you know we can't just tinker around and um, do passion projects all the time although I always have a passion project going on while I'm writing these these stories that lots and lots of people are clicking on and reading right. you know does that make sense yeah it reminds me of uh when uh when the director David Lynch put out uh Inland Empire he did this press conference and at the press conference someone asked him about the Zales Diamond commercials that he had directed in the 80s. Oh shit. That's really funny. <laughs> and he uh he gets really angry and like slams down his cup of coffee on the on the podium and goes, "I'm going to He's like, "I want y'all to listen cuz I'm only going to say this once. There are things you do for money so you can do the things you love." Yeah. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> But you know that it not we're not in we're not in the newsroom, um, you know, cranking out clickbait. But no. 
but we do need readers. And Don't you feel like there is a bit of that now, though, that there is a bit more of that? I mean, there's we're all having to put out a lot more fluff pieces these days. We're having to put out things that people read, and we have many, many meetings about the best way to do that and still provide a very, what I believe is to be a very important service to the community. You know, and honestly, part of my job is to draw draw people in to come for the the fluffy food pieces, and they stay for the, like, um, Wanda Green investigation. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you came for the 10 cheap meals. You stayed for the corruption. But, you know, it, that doesn't mean that, that I can't do what I consider to be some important work from time to time while I'm there. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said, and some of these things are like vanity projects. I don't know if anybody's going to read them or think that they're important or even particularly good, but they, f- <laughs> but they feel good. <laughs> they make, they make the clickbait go down better. <laughs> We've always got the white whale to chase. Yeah. Um, why does food journalism matter? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think it, I think it, it really does. Food journalism matters because there's such an intricate web behind what is right on your plate, an intricate web of producers and workers, um, yeah, farmers, um, marginalized people. Uh, a lot goes into producing this fancy bit of food on your fancy plate in your fancy restaurant. And I think that without food journalism, it's easy for people to forget that. Um, There are issues to be explored that I plan to work on soon. Um, What are barriers to minorities who want to get into farming Mm -hmm. is one. Um, Again, labor issues um, is our food safe? And somebody needs to be looking at these things. The food safety piece is, is important as well. Um, he'll learn more about that later. <laughs> but, you know, these things, these are the things that, that newspaper people, that writers, that journalists think about, that they want to write about, that they want to learn about. And without that, it is, again, it's just a bunch of people taking pictures of their food on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty, you know? I mean, there's a lot of pictures of food on my Instagram account. <laughs> I mean, that's, at, that's at Mackenzie 90. Lunsford, follow me. <laughs> that's 90% <laughs> of mine, for sure. <laughs> no, it's just, it is funny, because I feel like there's, Every time I log on to Instagram, there's, like, another new page of, like, some new food media thing. Right. It's it's all just, like, let's take a picture of our lunch and share it. And I think, like, one of the things I admire about your work is that, that, and one of the things I've, I've, I've definitely followed you in the pursuit of is, like, a deeper story on these issues and actually chasing the news and the real story, which is often not just the restaurant, it's the people working in it. It's the it's the policies that hinder or help them. It's the 
culture and the systems that help build up these places into institutions. And I think that that's often missed when you're just ranting or raving about the latest uh, special at some restaurant. Yeah. You know, and I wish that I could just do that kind of stuff all the time. Not the ranting and raving part. The, I mean, that's fun too, but <laughs> just the really meaty dig in kind of stories. And, and the, our food scene moves so fast that a lot of the times it's just like restaurant opening, restaurant closing, restaurant opening. And that becomes my entire job, which starts to make me feel kind of empty. But yeah, it's, it's, it's also sometimes hard to get people to read stories that are the most important. And I find that I write stories that I'm like, oh, yes, this means something to me. And then I put it, you know, somebody puts it online and we, we can see how many people are reading our right. stories in our newsroom. And I'll watch the board and then it'll just never register. <laughs> you know, a few people will read it here, a few people will read it there, people will maybe share it. And our diet, our, our, our diet, or our, the way that we consume journalism is just, it can be so unhealthy. I mean, people... You just get read the, the headline and move on. Well, you get the the news that you ask for. If if hundreds and hundreds of people are clicking on like kitten stories, you're gonna get more goddamn kitten stories. <laughs> you know, if you if you if you only get your news through Facebook, you're going to only get the like. Here are nine rooftop bars that you can go to, which is a real headline I just wrote. Here, here are nine rooftop bars where you can drink in the view. And that thing has been shared far and wide, you know, because that sounds delightful to people on an April afternoon when it's nice out. Let's get real. And what was the story you wanted to be read that was overlooked because of that one? Right now, I cannot come up with anything because I've been very focused on on the more entertainment -y stuff but I'm trying to get to stuff that I yeah. I that is important to me I mean it's uh, some of the things that I have worked on that didn't really do anything or as much as I would have liked them to do story you know what was disappointing to me actually I, I I've written several stories about the block and the African-American culture that was just kind of plowed under in, in reference to the fact that we just have not really had good soul food restaurants. We don't have good, right. even really good real Southern meat and three restaurants. And the block in Asheville used to be, it used to have tons of black owned businesses and soul food restaurants and all of that stuff. I remember Shabazz soul food. Yeah. Right. And, and I wrote that story and just nobody, nobody seemed to be talking about it. Nobody seemed to be interested in it, you know, and then there was a story about like, here's some really good burgers that I wrote and that thing went like semi viral, you know what I mean? So it's just, it can be frustrating knowing what people are reading and people aren't reading the things that I necessarily want them to be reading. Yeah. I, <laughs> I will never forget putting out the, the sexual harassment in the restaurant industry piece and then just watching the ticker. And I don't think that story got 2000 views. I, I mean, I was like, really, like, really? 
Yeah, isn't that frustrating? Yeah. I'm trying to think of other examples, and it's stuff like that. It's, you know, um, these. it's always a food policy kind of thing. Restaurant workers organizing for this and that, and it's interesting to see. Just kind of from a restaurant culture standpoint, it's it's relatively new, mm-hmm. you know, for for restaurant workers to be organizing for, for for workers' rights. I mean, what a novel concept, right? <laughs> I want health just insurance. What of, our, of our population <laughs> in this city is restaurant workers? And why would you why would you expect a living wage and and benefits and sick days? You precious thing you know (laughs) anyway (laughs) for doing your job you want (laughs) recognition (laughs) yeah so anyway i mean it's it's a it's a frustrating thing to just know um this is boring and important you're not going to read it this is this is super sugary and easy to swallow and you're gonna read the shit out of this story and right. i know it right <laughs> yeah you're about your fourth of july burgers you're gonna read all about it and then you're then you're gonna complain that, that's the thing that gets me is like everyone wants to complain about like restaurant prices in Asheville, and i'm like cool i've got like six stories that explain why you pay what you pay and did anybody read them and you're and no one's reading these yeah right i i don't i don't know I don't know. And I'm not complaining about Asheville or anything. I'm complaining about the general news consumer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just nationwide. You've documented pretty much the growth and explosion of Asheville's restaurant scene from before it was known as a restaurant city to... I mean, you were writing about this when... We got our first James Beard nominee, right? When, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've followed that from early 2000s to now when we've had, what, six James Beard nominees at this point? Seven? Um, I don't know. I mean... to our From our city just being like a small little town with half the building shut down downtown to a developed and grown food culture where every other door is a restaurant. Um what what's good about that what's bad about that how did how is this town i mean this town's very different than it was mm-hmm. um a lot's changed and i don't think all of it's been for the better mm-hmm. um what worries you about this scene that we've built and that in all honesty you were hu- helpful and instrumental in helping to cultivate because of your position. Well, I wouldn't say I have that much power, first of all. <laughs> I think you underestimate that. But uh, what worries me the most about Asheville's food and beverage scene, we'll wrap everything in together, and um, I, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, is, is that I don't want to see Asheville become a caricature of itself. You know, when, when people are with tons of money are moving here to open breweries that and I'm not talking I'm actually I'm not talking about Sierra Nevada or New Belgium I, I think that those are people with lots of money that came here and opened breweries that um, 
have their own authentic culture. But what I'm wary of are the people who come here with a lot of money and open sort of a caricature of what they see as Asheville culture, right? And you know what some of these businesses look like. They're like all rustic wood and, you know, you know what I mean? They're like trying to cultivate and fake an authentic vibe. Right. And and I, I, I see that happening. I've seen it happening for a long time and it rubs me the wrong way and and the thing that was special and still is I can't say you know Asheville is not special anymore obviously but the thing that always used to make Asheville special when I first moved here in the late 90s was that it just was it didn't try to be anything it didn't try to cater to anyone and there wasn't is much going on. So people were trying to create things, you know, things to do, things to eat, things to like, you know, things to make existence wonderful. And that just isn't really necessarily the vibe anymore. Um, it, it's to the a lot of people are are after money and we are all after money to a degree because that's, that's why what you it, open a business. That's what. That's why you open a business. That's why you get up and go to work every day. You know, you want to eat. Just, I'm not recommending anybody become a pauper necessarily, but like the um, the the aim is different, and certainly not for everybody because there there are people who are just full of heart and soul and authenticity, and they work with their local farmers and they mean it, and they walk the walk, and they're at the farmers market every weekend, and like this is their passion. And I mean, you know, the chefs I'm talking about It's you can tell just by looking at their menu or having a single conversation with them. But but the the money that's just pouring into this town is good for certain things. But the inauthenticity that's coming with it, I worry, will crush the authentic spirit of yeah. this city. And just, I don't want us to become, you know, beer Disneyland or malt Disney World is the thing that I always say. And it's just so stupid, but I'll, I'll say it again. Malt Disney World. Do you think it's too late? Uh, I mean, how do you come back? I don't know. It's just a different thing now. Yeah. And I've been here for more than half my life at this point, which scares me to death. <laughs> but I mean, it just is a different place now. And, and, you know, and I'm a different person than I was when I was 20 years old and moved here. You know, I, it just is what it is. And it's, it's up to, um, it's up to the people who live here and the people who are stakeholders to preserve some of the actual culture of the place and, um, remember what that is and um, hopefully you know it's up to some of us to tell an accurate story of what that is yeah yeah do you feel like it has already shifted out of that because Asheville used to be especially I'm thinking like early blind pig days like Asheville had this very chummy everybody was kind of working together everybody was sharing kitchen staff it wasn't super competitive there was enough room to grow for everyone it felt like and so everybody was kind of you know a tourist would walk into a restaurant and the chef would be like oh if you like us you got to check out so-and-so and what they're doing down the road and I kind of wonder if that's changed a little bit 
Um, I mean, I can't really speak to the day-to-day inner culture of, of the restaurants as much as I used to be able to. Um, I can tell you what my experience is as a person who goes to bars and dining rooms, and it's that no one thinks I'm local anymore. Everyone assumes I'm from somewhere else. And that that's sad that that kind of chummy feeling is, is kind of missing. You know, I'm sorry, that... you don't get recognized every time you walk in a restaurant. I went out two Saturdays ago and everywhere I went, people were like, welcome to Asheville. This is because I couldn't get into a bar anywhere. They were like, this is just how Asheville is on a Saturday. And I was like, I know I've lived here for 20 years. And they were like, oh, OK. <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> Well, I mean, come on. It's not like I'm out every single night. I've got a three-year-old now. Yeah, but still, your face was on a billboard a while back. Jesus, that fucking billboard. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have to talk about that now? (laughs) Oh, we totally should. (laughs) So so what was it like driving down the street and seeing yourself on a billboard? I hated that. I still hate that stuff. (laughs) I don't like that stuff at all. They, they put, <laughs> they, uh, God, please, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. The, um, Citizen Times put together this like huge promotional package when we started scene entertainment section. They thought, I don't know, they were trying to put like a human face on the Citizen Times or whatever, which is silly because they already have, everybody knows who Answer Man Boyle is out in the community. Like, especially the older folks, they're like, oh, that John Boyle. You know, I guess they were trying to bring like fresher blood. I, I have no idea. But anyway, they, put our faces everywhere and I hated it so much and then the um, newspaper got this giant literally larger than life photo of me in a cocktail dress and then put up a kiosk in the middle of the damn Asheville City Farmers Market and was like they were and they were trying to sell newspapers and I didn't know it was there and I went to the farmers market like in my shorts and the tattoos and like you? unshowered and everything and there's a big yeah it's actually somebody told me at one of the stalls did you know that there's a giant picture of you over there or i think they were just like oh a nice picture what are you talking about there it is go see it and, you know, it's just weird buying your potatoes or whatever while you were looking, like, while you're looking, your giant picture of yourself is staring you down. <laughs> it's just weird. It doesn't make any sense. I don't love it. I have requested that that be removed. It's so funny. It's just so weird. Anyway. Oh. Well, is there anything that you thought you would talk about that you have not, that you would like to talk about? No, I do wish we were drinking. (laughs) (laughs) That would be really fun. I might have to come back. Oh, we'll do another one sometime. I mean, because I I can't remember all the things that we were talking about on my porch that night after the wing war, but we just just went on and on and on and on, and I think we need to to drink next time. Yeah, of course. Definitely. (laughs) Maybe that won't get broadcast, but... Is there, yeah, is, is there anything else that you can think of that you've been wanting to? Not at the moment. I feel like I just, I mean, I guess that's the point. I just droned on and on and on about myself. I'm just not used to this part. I'm used to asking the questions. Yeah, no, I kind of like turning it around. 
Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for for talking to me yeah. and uh, you know putting on the headphones and sitting in front of a mic. I know that's a bit of a different role. It is. But, I uh, mean, you know, it's it's all. I guess it's always kind of fun to talk about yourself a lot. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, Th- there's thanks for been listening. A, yeah, there's definitely been a ton of things I wanted to ask you about. So I I really appreciate you coming on board and talking to a much larger audience about those things. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. That was fun. Thanks for sticking around for the whole conversation. I know it was a long one, but I hope you see why we thought it was important to bring you the whole thing. She certainly has some important perspectives for us to hear. Be sure and check out more of Mackenzie Lunsford's work at the Asheville Citizen Times, and I actually highly recommend going back and looking up her review of the Black Forest restaurant for Mountain Express. I think the most shocking thing is how tame it was, and that it actually isn't a bad review. There's just a couple dishes she doesn't seem to like. And then when you see the blowback she receives, you really get a picture of what it's like working as a critic of any kind of business. Or as Francis Lamb once said, journalism. It's a tough job with insane pressure and crappy pay. On the other hand, everybody hates you. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is brought to you by The Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years of farm-to-table food. The Marketplace always brings you the best food grown by your neighbors. The Second Helping is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. Produced the show. I wrote this music. I mix it all. Yada, yada, yada. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, handles our marketing and development. Be sure to visit our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, to stream full episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read stories from the show, and see the incredible artwork from our contributing artists. And don't miss new episodes on 103.7 WPVM the first Friday of every month. Always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Before we go, just a note from our sponsor. If you guys are looking to expand your farming business, the Organic Grower School Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and build a profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farmer network. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Education Center in Arden, North Carolina. Head to their webpage to check it out. Thanks!